Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Macaulay Holmes, the founder of the American Populist Coalition. Macaulay Holmes, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. The group that you founded, the American Populist Coalition, describes itself as, quote, a group of Americans united behind the commitment to put people over profits. Could you tell us a bit about the organization, why you set it up, and what you've been doing to promote your viewpoints here? Yeah, sure. So basically, um, me and a couple other people started the American Populist Coalition in an effort to um, not... So there's a lot of division on the left right now. Um, and basically, I think one of the main problems is that you have all of these different organizations, whether it's the Democratic Socialists of America or the Sunrise Organization or all these different organizations that are um, you know, organizing and being activists for specific issues, you don't really have any unifying label um, for people to get behind and a platform for the left in general to organize on. And so the goal with the American Populist Coalition was to set out to develop a website um, slash mobile app, um, which we are still in development on, um, that can act as that tool for people. So we just want to provide, we want to have a discussion with people, we want to have it be an open um, platform for people to go to the website, organize, consume independent media and news, um, and be able to create events, be able to have communications with that, independent of the electoral process, um, to engage in direct action and organization on that front for the left. Do you think that's something that is really crucial here when it comes to politics? Because there's a lot of conversations about people who feel that politics doesn't represent them, that politicians don't represent them, and they feel often that they don't have a voice which results in them becoming alienated from politics. But actually, there's a lot people can do to get engaged, get involved, have their say, make an impact. Is that what you're hoping to do, to bring in those people who might feel they've been left behind and ignored by politics? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's pretty much a good rundown of what we're trying to do. I think engaging in action outside of the electoral system is going to be really important for the left moving forward because um, the electoral side of it can only go so far. And we saw that with Bernie Sanders, and he really was trying to create a left workers movement from scratch in, since 2016 and 2020. Um, and so a lot of his supporters and a lot of independents and even a lot of disaffected Republicans are starting to realize that this two-party system is broken. Um, and that we can engage in direct action externally to electoral politics and get change done that way. I mean, you saw it with the, the fight for 15 um, and fighting for $15 minimum wages and stuff like that. Direct action works. And that's, you know, I mean, when you when you have enough people participating and making their voices heard, then the, the politicians that are supposed to represent them are forced to listen and in many cases are forced to adjust um, their policy positions. So I think that promoting local organizing, promoting strong union membership, promoting um, a, a generalized workers' movement in the United States is going to be a key uh, element of moving forward um, and getting some of the reform that we need externally to um, 
just participating in the electoral process and voting. We've seen a lot of groups come together, and you mentioned some of them that have risen up to fill that role of activism and give people a home for their political opinions. But they've not always been welcomed by the existing political structures that exist, namely the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. They've felt quite challenged by new movements that have risen up. And arguably, we saw that with the response to Bernie Sanders and his Our Revolution movement. Do you think this is something that's a challenge here? And how do you approach it? Yeah, I mean, the, the rejection of Bernie Sanders' movement in the United States was, you know, I mean, as somebody who's, who's really interested in politics and was following the entire race throughout, throughout um, the Democratic primary, it was really disillusioning. Um, for somebody who believes in that policy platform, knowing that other people, knowing that the majority of the party, knowing that even in some cases, um, depending on the policy, that a majority of Americans support uh, large parts of his agenda, that the establishment of whether it be the media or whether it be the Democratic Party themselves, um, just put their entire efforts into squashing the movement. And they did so knowing that it would um, make people feel, like I said, disillusioned, that it would disaffect um, a large portion of the base. And that's a risk that they took. Um, and, you know, I mean, it just shows you the power of the establishment in that sense to, to really try to squash. Because if you look back before uh, Super Tuesday, it, the entire discussion was about who's going to come in second place, who's going to um, challenge Bernie Sanders at the convention and try to use superdelegates to uh, overpower that way. And, you know, Obama made some phone calls to Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, and they managed to turn the primary around with a momentum shift. And uh, it was a different story from there. But, you know, you see you see the effort that's put in to the from the establishment Democrats into crushing a left wing workers movement. And then you contrast that with the effort that you see them putting in against Donald Trump. And I think it's a pretty stark contrast that's worth noting in how how aggressively they push back against the left versus the, the tactics that they're using against the right, which at, at this point in the campaign seem to be um, pretty weak, considering. Why do you think the Democratic Party takes that approach? Is it just fear of these policies? Is it that the Democratic Party isn't as left-wing as people have once pictured and it's moved further and further to the center and further to the right, in your opinion? Why is it that it wants to fight that battle with people who on the whole, would like to support the Democratic Party. Why does it want to alienate those voters? Because surely that's shooting itself in the foot, essentially. Yeah, no, it definitely is shooting itself in the foot. And you're seeing that right now. And a large portion of the, the Bernie Sanders coalition doesn't want to support Joe Biden. There's a pretty large pushback to Joe Biden being the nominee. But, um, I mean, I think it goes back to ownership. It goes back to who is in real control of the Democratic Party. They like to pretend to represent workers. They like to pretend to represent progressive policies. But when you get down to it, they, they really believe in, they, they, they cover it with cultural aspects and social aspects and that side of progressivism. And when you look at the economic side and what they could actually do to fundamentally address the problems that Americans are facing, that everyday Americans are facing, they don't want to touch it. They never want to touch the economic side of it. And so that's, that's the underlying problem is that on, on the surface level, Democrats are further left than Republicans, but on the economic side, they aren't further left. They, they pretty much completely agree and are complicit in the economics that um, Republicans are running with.
on that side of political issues, you've been personally heavily critical of capitalism. You've described it as broken due to the fact that, quote, three men own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. Do you think that this issue with the economic inequality between the wealthiest Americans who have earned hundreds of billions of dollars during this coronavirus pandemic and those at the other end who find themselves without work, without uh, health care because it's tied to their work. Do you see that economic issue as the root of many of the political issues that exist in America? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely do. I mean, I think this goes back to, you know, during the Democratic primary, we had uh, people like Nina Turner um, going out and straight up calling Mike Bloomberg an oligarch. Um, and I think I think when she said it, then it was true. And I think it's even more true now. We've seen during the coronavirus pandemic here that we've seen probably one of the, the largest upward transfers of wealth in the history of the country. And, you know, you have headlines where billionaires, the top whatever number of billionaires have brought in 484 billion, I think, was the number over the last few months um, to their wealth. So it's like, and that's that's all happening while we have everyday Americans. You know, there's uh, almost 20 percent unemployment right now. You have over 75 percent of the country is living paycheck to paycheck, and then you have these people at the top who are just accumulating such vast amounts of wealth that nobody could ever use it in a lifetime. Nobody needs it, and they're exercising control with that wealth on the legislative agenda. And that, I mean, that is the problem. If you're talking about the root of the problems, it's it's not even necessarily just the, the, the accumulation of wealth, it's the accumulation of wealth and using that power to to affect change on the legislative agenda. I think that money in politics is, is definitely one of the, the root problems that we can address now. When we look at the current outbreak, some of the corporations who've received coronavirus relief funds, taxpayers' dollars, did so despite the fact that these corporations and the people at the top of them don't pay their fair share of taxation, in some cases don't pay any taxation at all. Do you think that America should start taking this harder approach on these corporations? And instead of going, we're going to bail you out, we're going to provide you with these funds every time, say, we will only give you support if you begin paying your fair share of taxes. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that absolutely should be a, a prerequisite to, to any bailout money. But I mean, it goes back to um, that, that saying that's often passed around on the left, um, and I, I don't know who originally said it, but um, that in the United States, what you have is socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. And that these, these corporations, these massive corporations cannot lose. It's impossible for them to lose in the United States. They privatize the profits and they uh, they uh, socialize the losses. So, you know, I think that's I think that's a fundamental problem. And I think that, like you were saying, if if we were able to get better regulations on that. Um, but I mean, I mean, it also ties into a lot of these corporations aren't even um, they're not even using the bailout money in, in the ways that were intended from the bailouts. Right. Obviously, the bailouts left it pretty open ended so that a lot of corporations were able to abuse the system. But. Um, at the same time, you see headlines of, um, you know, corporations using tens of millions of dollars on stock buybacks and, and then turning around and asking for a handout. You know, so this isn't a lot of these corporations aren't even intending to use this to help their workers in any way, shape or form. They're taking the money and running with it. I mean, it's, it's essentially looting the Treasury. When Congress just can act quickly to provide 
four trillion dollars in economic relief for corporations to behave in the way that you just mentioned there, where some corporations have been taking the money, still laying off workers, then providing bonuses and extra profits to those at the top of the organization. Do you think that's why, when we look at young people in America and across the world, they get so frustrated when politicians respond to policies that will ensure that they have a safe and secure future, such as a Green New Deal, such as ensuring that there isn't a housing crisis, such as ensuring that people don't have to start their life with tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. When they're met with responses from politicians of, well, how on earth are we going to pay for those policies? Do you think that's why people get so frustrated as young people and just think, how am I supposed to even consider getting behind these politicians when they, they make these outlandish claims? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a lot of frustration and why a lot of um, a lot of the left is hesitant to support someone like Joe Biden, is that people, candidates like Joe Biden in the Democratic primary spent the entire time um, making arguments like, well, if you like your health care, you can keep it. We need to keep around private health care because, you know, people should have that choice, et cetera, saying, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all without it? I mean, these are all these are all disingenuous arguments um, that were proposed by Democrats, by a majority of the Democrats. Um, in the Democratic primary. So, I mean, that's a problem that people have to address is that, you know, there's something, there's things like Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, uh, forgiving student loan debt that are good for the economy. They, they, they aren't costly, they are investments in our people. The only reason that Democrats oppose them or say that they're too expensive is because they would be too expensive for their donors. It's that they don't explicitly help their donors. That's the only that's the only barrier between them supporting it and them not supporting it. It has nothing to do with the cost. It has nothing to do with, with burdening the, the average taxpayer. It's entirely because that is what their donors um, are for or against. You've been critical in this podcast so far of Joe Biden. I know that Joe Biden wouldn't have been your pick for the Democratic nominee. He probably wouldn't have been in your top 20 potential picks for Democratic nominee. And there are those on the left who vehemently oppose Donald Trump, but they can't bring themselves right now to say they'll get behind Joe Biden because of the positions he's taken over the years. As someone who's based in Georgia, a state that voted for Trump in 2016, but now is reportedly a battleground state, your vote will be crucial in November. How do you square your concerns about Joe Biden with your concerns about four more years of Donald Trump. Will you be able to vote for Joe Biden? So, so that entirely depends on, on whether or not the votes are earned. I mean, you know, this, this goes back to just the fundamentals of what, what an electoral process is supposed to be. No politician has votes by default. Nothing is given by default. The entire point of having and an electoral process in which candidates um, are, are, are voted on is that they have to go out, they have to provide reasons to vote for them. And if your only strategy is, I'm not as bad as the other guy, it's probably a losing strategy. My main criticisms for Biden don't stem from a place of being, well, I'm anti-Biden, I'm never going to vote for him no matter what, um, my vote can't be earned, et cetera, et cetera. My position is, these are the fundamental reforms that this country needs in order to have a sustainable future. 
Joe Biden should adjust his platform and meet the left somewhere in the middle, or whoever the Democratic nominee, nominee should meet the left somewhere in the middle, which he has not really compromised at all. Um, and, and that's how you earn the votes. My, my entire criticism of Joe Biden is coming from a place of putting, of, of wanting to beat Trump and making that the top priority. I don't believe that Joe Biden or his platform as it stands today is a strong, is a strong challenge to Trump. And so I think it's necessary to criticize him. And I think it's necessary to force their hand at, by withholding our votes on the left in order to see some of that change that we need to not only to reform the country, but to also beat Donald Trump. Because we're talking about a group of voters that Joe Biden needs to win the election. You can't tell the base, you can't tell primarily, primarily young voters, which if you look at the polling before Bernie Sanders dropped out, he was he was winning the young vote, meaning under 45, not just 20 year olds, not just 30 year olds, but under 45, upwards of 75 percent, equally as much as Joe Biden was winning the older vote. And these young people are saying explicitly, these are the policies you need to you need to enact or you need to adopt some of these policies. You know, there's some that even if he wants to stay um, on the corrupt side of the positions that he's taking on some of these, like whether it be Medicare for all, whether it be you know some of those other policies. There are positions he could take that would bring in young voters immediately, and it wouldn't even really affect any of his donors or anything like that. He could adopt, he could say, in, my, in the first 100 days or on the first day I'm elected in office, I'm going to federally legalize marijuana, and I'm going to divert um, funding to give minority communities a step, um, a foothold in the legal distribution. He could do something like that, and it wouldn't even it wouldn't even challenge his donors in any meaningful way. But it would give something it would give people something to vote for. And so far, what we've seen in this in, in, since Bernie Sanders has dropped out is that Joe Biden hasn't adjusted at all. I mean, he came he came out and said, you know, maybe I, I'll I'll drop the Medicare eligibility age down to 55. Well, 55 is a joke. Let's be honest. That's less than what Hillary Clinton was running on in 2016. And uh, it, this really isn't that complicated. It's it's not a it's not a moral posturing position. It's not saying you know I'm doing this out of a um, out of a you know just to make a statement. It's saying this is this is this is how elections work. If you want to win an election, you have to run on a platform that is giving people something to vote for and not just against. So to me, it's a it's 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 a strategy thing, and it's it has basically nothing to do. Um, with taking a stance against Joe Biden himself. It's, it's purely a matter of policy. Do you think that's part of the reason why the Democratic Party has strayed to an extent is that it started to take certain groups of voters for granted? So in 2016, for example, expecting all of those voters who were motivated by Barack Obama in 2008 to show up again in 2016 to support Hillary Clinton comments, for example, recently by Joe Biden about African-American voters, for example. People took that to suggest that he was taking those voters for granted. Do you think that's part of the flaw here in the Democratic Party? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and, and then the you ain't black comment um, by Joe Biden is, is emblematic of that. And it wasn't a one off comment and it wasn't just, you know, a joke. If you look at the policies that Democrats have been enacting over the last couple of decades, it's, it shows right there. That's where the evidence is. Um, and, and it was in response. I mean, if you take it in context, the you ain't black comment, Joe Biden made that in response to Charlemagne asking him a policy question. It was a direct question about hey, I'm going to need to hear more from you about policy and what you're going to do for my community. And whether it was a joke or not, 
Joe Biden said what he said. And, it, it, you know, it's subliminally it's 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 adding to that the idea that they're taking for granted all of these communities they are taking for granted, whether it's the African-American community, whether it's uh, the Latino community, whether it's um, young voters in general. They have been taking these voters for granted. They think they're going to show up. I mean, if you look at Barack Obama's campaign, why was he able to bring out such large numbers of, of young voters? Why was he able to bring that energy? It's because he was running on a progressive rhetoric, not progressive policies and what he actually enacted. But his campaign was about progressive rhetoric, and it was about energizing and giving people hope for the future. Joe Biden's literally running a campaign on a return to the past. So yeah, for a lot of people right now, they're saying, a return to what past? The, the, the return to the past is terrible for most Americans. So I think, I mean, I think that's a serious misstep. And I think it's Democrats are going to really need to adjust course on that front and give people concrete policy ideas. I mean, you look at, you know, Joe Biden came out with these task forces um, as a way to placate the left. Um, and and I, I, I think that's another another way that people are, are seeing an issue with the Democratic Party is because we don't need task forces to, uh, you know, with progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is running, I think, the climate um, task force. And then you have Rashida Tlaib, I think, running the, um, the health care task force, which is like, what are these task forces doing in any concrete way? What are they providing? We, we already know the policy positions that the left wants to see adopted. We don't need a task force to come and start, you know, having debates about that, because at the end of the day, regardless of what those task forces come up with, Joe Biden can just ignore them. There's, that's, not, that's not a concrete commitment in any way. If he wanted to earn the votes of the left, he could just come out and say, I support this policy, I support this policy, et cetera. And it wouldn't even really take that much. I don't th- it would really take one major policy adoption for him to energize a good portion of the left, for Democrats to um, energize a good portion of the left. It would really only take one or two policy proposals. So I don't know what they're waiting on that. I don't know. And, you know, there's also the argument to be to be made that Joe Biden shouldn't even be the nominee. He isn't he hasn't been nominated. yet. The nomination isn't until August. And there's still plenty of time to replace him with a better candidate. And I think, as you were saying, not only is Joe Biden not my preferred nominee, he would have been my last. pick. The only person I would maybe put a, below him would be Mike Bloomberg. But I mean, I would have probably held my nose and voted for almost any of the other candidates. Um, Joe Biden has, has a significant amount of ground to catch up if he wants to earn the, the votes of the left. One of the significant areas that you touched on is the issue of health care, which was debated so hotly during the primary in the Democratic Party. It's been debated in Congress significantly over the last few years. And with health care in America often tied to employment, every week millions of people are losing their jobs due to the coronavirus outbreak and their health care. Why has ensuring that everyone in America can access affordable health care become such a hot button issue? Because for people around the world, for people in the UK, having access to health care as and when you need it is a no brainer. So why is it such a hot button issue? I mean, it's it's the it's the the power and influence of the insurance companies. You look at, you know, I hate to keep bringing up Joe Biden and his flaws, but Joe Biden said he would veto Medicare for all. It has, you know, you often hear a lot of centrists saying, well, you know, the argument is, you know, we all want Medicare for all. Eventually, we all want to get to Medicare for all, but there's no way you're going to be able to get it through the Senate. It's going to be too hard, you know, blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. Joe Biden explicitly said that even if Medicare for all was passed through the Senate, he would veto it because of the costs, is what he said. 
So, and, and, and you look at that and there's a direct correlation. What is the reason that Joe Biden says he, he would veto Medicare for all? Is it an ideological disagreement? Is it, what is it? No, it's, it's purely because he takes campaign donations from health insurance companies. That's it. That's, that, that is the, the line that he's drawing in the sand. There's, you look at some of these polls that have come out. There was one by Common Dreams um, that came out a couple weeks ago that had upwards of in the high 80s in the Democratic Party supporting Medicare for all. And yet Joe Biden doesn't. And yet a substantial portion of Congress doesn't support Medicare for all. I mean, this is a joke. If we're talking about if we're talking about having a representative democracy um, where where elected officials are supposed to listen, listen to their constituents, this is analogous to the criticisms that Democrats always have on the right and saying that you know, a majority of Americans support uh, common sense gun reform, and yet the Republican Congress would never even think about doing that. Well, that's because they take money from the NRA. That's because they have deep ties with those those organizations. It's the same exact thing on the Democratic Party. It's the same exact thing with the Democratic Party on health care. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a problem that Democrats have to challenge head on, admit admit that they are on some level corrupt, whether, you know, you're not obviously not going to come out and explicitly say that, but admit that um, that shortcoming and then, you know, reform from that. Because as long as as long as politicians like Joe Biden are putting their donors above the um, the electorate that they're trying to earn the votes of, you're going to have that problem. You're going to have that problem of where people feel like they're not being represented um, on the issues that they care about the most. One area that's come under scrutiny in recent years is the media and the way it covers day-to-day political events, often allowing, in this instance, over the last few years, Donald Trump to divert attention away from scandals or failures from himself and his administration. As someone who covers political topics on YouTube, highlighting your views on it, having a look into the motivations behind what went on there. Do you believe the media is responsible for how politics got to the point we're at now by seeking to air the most sensational headlines instead of the most accurate news? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a big problem. I think that there, there was a huge, you know, like you're saying, the media in the United States, they, they, are, they are corporations just like any other corporations are, and they operate with profit as their primary motive. And, you know, over time, that leads to, like we're saying, sensationalism um, and, and always looking for the next scandal. And that's what you see with Donald, their coverage of Donald Trump is, yes, Donald Trump does horrific and scandalous things pretty much daily. But at the same time, you have to put it in context. And you also have to consider that if everything is a scandal, then it starts to lose its weight. And when, when things are seriously um, need to be addressed in a real way, then you've kind of lost a little bit of that edge on those things. If, you, if you're covering every single tweet, if you're covering, you know, every single stupid thing that he says um, and acting like it's the, the worst thing in the world, then the actual worst things in the world um, get a little bit dimmed out there. So I think that's a big problem. And I think, you know, you, you also saw it tied in with how they covered the Bernie Sanders campaign, how they covered the, the left. But I think you know, I think I think the the nonstop 24/7 coverage of Trump, um, instead of trying to talk about the real issues facing Americans and and actual ways to solve it, instead of just saying Trump is terrible, Trump is terrible, Trump is terrible. We all know Trump is terrible. Everyone in the world that you know is paying attention knows that Trump is terrible. So how are we going to fix it? How are we going to address it? Let's go start going down that road. The other issue is obviously social media. 
Social media plays a role in all of this. It gives this immediacy to the news we receive. People don't want to wait to get that news. Instead, they demand it the moment it happens. Do you think that in itself has played into this whole situation where media is interested in being first, people on social media are interested in putting out their opinion instantly without considering maybe the facts, the wider motivation, what's going on here, why is this being raised, and it's shaping our debate in a way that isn't helpful? Yeah, no, I mean, social media um, is playing a big role in, in these things, and you see some things get get really, really quickly um, out of hand on social media, and there's a lot of misinformation going around, um, and often it's, it's, it's hard on major stories to keep track of what's accurate and what's not because of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that feeds into the sensationalism, uh, but, I, you know, I don't, it's tough to, it's tough to, to envision a, uh, a solution to that problem, given how wrapped up people are in social media and how, you know, it's always about being the first person to cover something, first person to have an opinion on something. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough position. And you see recently Twitter trying to, quote, you know, crack down on Trump by hiding some of his tweets or whatever. Um, and Facebook choosing to do absolutely nothing on the political side to protect against misinformation. Um, so it's, it's a really dangerous road we're heading down with social media um, and, and how much weight people put on, um, on things that they see in passing on social media. Finally, where can people find out about your work, keep in touch with you, check out your YouTube channel? Give us a bit of information about that, where people can go and find that. So I guess the easiest, most direct route would just be my Twitter account, which is Macaulay Holmes. Um, and right there, you'll see a link to my YouTube channel and you'll see a link to the American Populist Coalition account and everything um, where we're updating what we're doing with that and everything. Macaulay Holmes, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. That was Macaulay Holmes, the founder of the American Populist Coalition. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Macaulay Holmes and his YouTube channel Macaulay on YouTube. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.